Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. This is an annual event. We do this every year. Since we started in February of 2015, it has been a priority for us to dedicate the first part of our year to the Lord. And we do this by fasting. And so some of you, you're here for the first time and you're like, oh my gosh, these people are hardcore. Um, But uh, man, fasting, I, I grew up in a culture where fasting was never talked about. And yet it is a part of the spiritual life. And we'll see in the passage today, it's actually an expected part of the spiritual life. So uh, fasting is popular in culture today, so maybe uh, if you're scrolling on your social media, uh, you see these these ads for intermittent fastings. Anybody uh, know what that's all about? And so intermittent fasting is you don't eat for a period of time, and then you eat for a period of time. And and here's the thing, you all do that all the time. Um, Any of you, are y'all big breakfast eaters? If you're a big breakfast eater, let me see you. Okay, all right, there there are a few of you in the room, more of you than raise your hand, that's fine. Um, but you know that that word, break fast? <laughs> gotcha. See, because when you're sleeping, you don't eat, hopefully, unless you sleepwalk like Will Ferrell and Step Brothers. But, uh, uh, but, but, but here's the whole idea. You don't eat, and then you get up in the morning and you break your fast. Breakfast, that's free. All right, so, uh, but here's the goal. So while intermittent fasting, there are medical benefits to doing that, including weight loss. If you don't eat, you will lose weight. And if you continue not to eat, you will die. And so, uh, uh, but, 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 but there, are medical, there, there are medical benefits to intermittent fasting. But here's the thing, when we move it into the spiritual realm, there is a spiritual discipline, a spiritual benefit to fasting. And so just know this, Um, fasting is not a medical idea. It's actually a God idea. And so we can look all the way back throughout the Old Testament. Fasting was a priority for the people of Israel. And so just as you fast to get toxins out of your body, you fast spiritually to get spiritual toxins out of your body, to reset, to be made new. And so um, let me tell you a few things about our 21 days of fasting. So um, I really want you to be praying for the rest of the afternoon. Some of you, you knew this was coming, you've seen the ads, and so you've already begun thinking about it. For some of you, this is new information, and so I want you to quickly begin to ask the Lord, hey, how can I participate in this? There are so many different ways that are outlined in our guide, but let me tell you a few ways that you can fast. Um, You can do a liquid-only fast, and so a liquid-only fast is that you are only drinking liquids, because that's what that means. 
So we had some young adults a few years ago that put a Happy Meal in a blender, threw a milkshake in, blended it up. <laughs> they did it. It was not any healthier when they drank that, um, but that counts, right? Um, so a liquid only fast, um, you can do uh, what would be more of a Daniel fast. And so uh, that is outlined in our fasting guide and tells you what you can eat and what you can't. Uh, then also uh, there's more of a Ramadan fast where you don't eat from sun up to sundown. Maybe you'll fast a meal during the day. Maybe you'll fast two or three days during the week. Here's the thing. This is not about legislation. This is between you and the Lord. Amen. And so uh, the goal is that over the next 21 days, you give the Lord priority and you say, hey, for some of you, I'm gonna give this a try. So uh, let me say this real quickly. Some of you will say, hey, I'm gonna fast from social media. Um, hey, you probably need to get off social media anyway, but that's not a fast. We're talking about fasting from food. Lent comes up about 40 days before Easter, so you can give that up then or now and maybe forever, okay? Um, number two, the church is gonna be open uh, at 6 a.m. Monday through Saturday during the 21 days. And so this is an opportunity for you to come, for you to sit and soak. There'll be worship playing, there'll be prayer prompts on the screen. So there's a time of, uh, for you to get alone with the Lord and a time for you uh, to gather together and we will uh, go through some times of corporate prayer as well. And so that's gonna be 6 a.m. Monday through Saturday throughout the fast. And then uh, number three, I've already told you this, but during the month, life groups are going to be going through a curriculum uh, that is put out by practicing the way on fasting. And so it is, uh, it is one uh, a stream a week that will give you an opportunity to watch uh, a video by John Mark Comer, and then you can uh, answer questions in a small group. Uh, if you get the fasting guide, you can also go through that on your own. And here's why we're offering that, because we want fasting to go beyond this 21 days and it to become a regular spiritual discipline in your life. And so all of that to say, we've got a lot going on this month and would love for you to jump in and be a part of it. So we are continuing in Matthew today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter four. And so we're gonna look at the first 11 verses in Matthew chapter four. And then we are going to jump back. We're leapfrogging the baptism of Jesus today because this passage is really pertinent uh, to fasting. And there's some things that I wanna show you in the passage. And then next week, we'll jump back into the end of three and we'll catch Jesus being baptized. So we're gonna look at Matthew 4, and after a 40-day fast, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And so let me read through the passage for you and then uh, follow along on the screen, and then I'll point out a few things. Starting with verse 1, chapter 4. It says, then, this is after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him, and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so there's a lot in this passage. And so I just want to point out a few things. And so going back to verse one, it says, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we'll see this next week in the baptism account, but but Matthew is emphasizing here a spirit-led life. A spirit-led life. When Jesus is baptized, if you remember that account, it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. The Spirit fell. At his baptism, he comes out of the water, the Spirit falls, and it says then, so immediately following, it says the Spirit led him. So it's so important for us to remember that while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. And so... The reason that that is important is because Jesus is showing us, you and me, with with flesh and bones, showing us what it looks like to live a spirit-led life. So if you can't get to a place where Jesus is fully God and fully man, then you'll miss it here. Because in reality, he is the, we call it the incarnation. He is God with skin on. But he took on the limitations of you and me in order to show us how to live the spirit-led existence in the kingdom of God. And so we say this a lot, but there's this common misunderstanding of the American gospel in the church today. And it's this. It's really this event evangelism idea that, that evangelism is just this event that you trust Jesus to keep you out of hell and then you work hard to try to become a better version of yourself. And so there's this event where you're changed and then you just kind of try to figure it out on your own. I grew up in that. And so I grew up not really understanding that there was, it wasn't just that I was saved, but it is now I am being saved every day. That I am in this process of becoming more like Jesus. And so when you said yes to Jesus, you received the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. It is Christ in me. It is the Spirit of Jesus now residing in me and teaching me and training me how to follow him. Meaning this, I don't decide in any situation what the right thing to do. I listen and I follow the leadership of the Spirit to tell me where to go and what to do. How's that fly with you? See, for most of us in the room, if you grew up in the United States of America, you know what independence looks like, right? And if you're a self-starter, if you're a mover and a shaker, you've invited Jesus maybe to be a part of your life. And you see your life as this big pie chart. And you've got your work life, you've got your family life, you've got your discretionary time, and you've got this pie piece that you call your spiritual life. Well, man, I just wanna pop that balloon because at the end of the day, Jesus is really not interested in your spiritual life. He's interested in your life. 
We just sang about it. He wants you to get to a point where he is not just an add-on to your life to try to make your life a little better. He wants to come and be your life, life itself. What does that look like? To live a life where he is in charge all the time. That is a spirit-led life. So, where does the spirit lead Jesus? Into the wilderness. Okay. He leads him into the wilderness. This is going to mess with your theology here over the next couple of minutes. That the spirit, he comes up out of the water and it's like, woo! Think about your baptism. You came up out of the water. You were so excited. Man, this is going to be a changed life. I'm ready to, to, to move in a new way. And what did you, what did, where was Jesus led by the spirit? Into the wilderness. That'll jack with the brother, right? That immediately upon now beginning his ministry, the Spirit says, hey, let's go. And he takes him out into the wilderness. But not just took him out into the wilderness. With What was the purpose? To be tempted by Satan. What? What? Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit for the express purpose of being tempted by the enemy. What is up with that, y'all? So this goes back to the counterintuitive kingdom of God. We've been talking about it since the beginning of Matthew. It's upside down. The, the path to the way of Jesus will often look much different than the intuitive path that we want to go down. Right? And a lot of it is the Americanization of the gospel. That hey, in Jesus, now I'm gonna be prosperous. He's gonna come and meet all my needs. He's gonna be my genie in a bottle. And let me just ask you, when has that ever worked out? That's why we are failing miserable in the thing that we call Christianity because it doesn't add up. The Americanization of the gospel says, woo, you're gonna live your best life now. You're gonna get a new car. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. You're gonna get that job promotion. Everything's gonna be harmonious at home. And know this, that may happen, but it's not the goal of the spiritual life. In fact, what if... A big part of the spiritual life is leading you into a wilderness. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but some of you, you're in a wilderness season. And if I ask you right now to raise your hand, I bet half the room be like, me. And if I would say, keep it up if you feel like you've been in a wilderness for a long time, your hand would probably stay up. Why? Because it's the reality. Life is hard. Life is hard. And here's the problem for a lot of us because we don't embrace it. Sometimes the spirit leads us into uncomfortable spaces that when we get in those uncomfortable spaces, we blame God instead of blessing him. We blame God instead of asking God, hey, I'm in this season. What do you want to do in this season? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to learn? What if he leads you into the wilderness because there's something he's wanting to perfect in you. The word tempted and the word tested mean the same thing. It's synonymous in this passage. So it made me think of James chapter one, verse two through four, where he says, consider it 
Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must have its perfect work that you may be what? Mature and complete, lacking in what? Nothing, nothing, zero, nada. I'm bilingual. So, but think about it. Some of you just got that. You're like... Not a means nothing in scripture. All right, so uh, here's the point. The point is this. God is always up to perfecting us and often he will use pain, suffering, wilderness, tests, trials in order to perfect us. That is literally the subtext of the entire Bible. You go Old Testament to New Testament and what you see is a whole lot of suffering and God saying, I'm not gonna take the suffering away from you, but I'm gonna walk with you through it because there's something I wanna do. You look in the New Testament, every person that followed Jesus died a horrible death. Welcome to restoration. Man, life's just, life's hard. Life's hard. Yet there's this invitation the Spirit drawing us out into the wilderness. So it could be that overcoming temptation is synonymous with passing a test. At any rate, Jesus is showing us, he's about to show us how to overcome temptation. And look at verse two, it says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So I feel like this is kind of a throwaway statement for Matthew like he doesn't get into a theology on fasting. He just says that Jesus quit eating. And he didn't eat for 40 days, 40 nights. But I wanna press in here. So if Jesus is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, I think it's safe to say that Jesus was led by the Spirit to fast for 40 days. I think that's inferred here. That he is being invited into fasting for 40 days. Why? Why would the spirit want to weaken him before he tempts him? If the goal was to tempt him or test him, why would the spirit want him to be in a weakened state? Well, this helps us frame the reason behind fasting. So for more, most of us, this is... Uh, Totally counterintuitive. For some of you, you would literally say, if I miss a meal, I'm hangry, right? I'm not just hungry, I'm hangry. It makes me mad. How many of you just love to eat? You love you some food. How many foodies we got in the room? Yeah, yeah. Man, we got male and female are like, don't deny me my food, right? How many of you eat three meals a day and you gotta have those three meals or you can't survive in your own mind? Right, yeah. How many of you snack in between those meals? How many of you would say, I have hand-to-mouth disease? Anybody? Yeah. Josh, Josh Agnew is not in the room, but we call him the snack panther around the office because it's just, yeah. So uh, you can ask him about it later. But, but here's the thing. When you hear about fasting, you're like, man, I don't even want to skip a meal or a snack, much less deny myself food. Because if you don't eat for a period of time, you get in your own mind at least an emotionally weakened state, right? You don't like the way you are. No one around you likes the way you are. But here's the point of fasting. Because here's the thing. If you just don't eat 
but you don't replace that with something, you're just on a diet. Because the goal of fasting is to draw you closer to God. And so when you fast, you draw close to God through his word, through prayer, through worship. It's, a, it's the whole idea of, hey, listen, God, I need you. I am in a physically, emotionally weakened state. I need you. So while you may be physically weakened, you are spiritually full. So after 40 days, Jesus was in the perfect position to be tested. He might have been physically weakened, but can you imagine what a spiritual beast he was in that moment? He was full. He was dialed in. Paul talks about this need for strength and weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, do you remember, he's talking about this thorn in the flesh. He says, man, the Lord gave me this thorn in the flesh and I begged him to take it from me. Three times I begged him to take it from me. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect where? In weakness. In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am, what? Weak, then I am, what? Strong. Paul got it. What is Paul saying there? He's like, when I come to the end of myself, that is where God begins. For some of you, the reason you are not experiencing the power of God in your life is because you refuse to get to the end of yourself. And you continue to hold on to things that are just kind of keeping him at bay where he can't fully have access to everything he wants to do in your life. And you do it in the name of Christianity. What if God wants to get you to the end of yourself? Because at the end of you, in your weakness, Christ's strength is perfected. Okay, so here, Jesus again, he's giving an example of how to live in the kingdom of God. So in the Jewish context, fasting was a common religious practice. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will talk about it in Matthew 6. He has these three movements. He says, hey, when you give, and then he says, when you pray, dot, dot, dot. And in Matthew 6, 16, he says, when you fast, dot, dot, dot. So he's got these three spiritual disciplines. Hey, when you give, give generously, sacrificially. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. When you pray, and then he gives us a model for prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And then he says, when you fast, and he says, don't get all gaunt and stand in, on the street corner saying, Oh, God, I know I look bad, but I, I'm fasting right now. No, he says, take a bath, yo. But what's the implication there? When you fast. It's an expected part of the spiritual life. If you were a good Jew, you knew, hey, fasting is part of a religious practice. And he's reframing it, saying, hey, when you fast, I don't need to know that you're fasting. Why? Because it's between you and the Father. So, in a broader context, Jesus is reversing the story of the Israelites. 
and really all of humankind. So let me, let me tease that out a little bit. So from a Jewish perspective, his 40 days in the wilderness represented the 40 years that the Israelites were in the wilderness. And so he is symbolically showing them what it looks like to live in a wilderness experience but overcome temptation. And if you read through the 40 years in the wilderness, the the Israelites were a train wreck. If you were with us during the book of Hebrews, the main point was Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Say that with me. Jesus is better. Say it out loud. Jesus is better. So that is what the writer of Hebrews, he wanted to get across and he attacked it from many different angles. Here Jesus is the better Moses. He's the better Moses. He's the deliverer. And his response to temptation was to quote Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy was uh, the last words of Moses before he died and Joshua took the mantle of leadership and, and, and walked the Israelites across the Jordan River into their land of promise. And now Jesus is reversing the trend symbolically by overcoming temptation. In an even broader sense, Jesus is reliving and reversing the curse of Genesis 3. If you remember in Genesis chapter three, it all centered around food, right? That the enemy comes and and tempts Eve and Adam standing there passively with her. It says, hey, did God really say you can't eat this? And offers her this fruit, it'll look good to her eye. So she took it and bit it and then gave it to Adam and he ate it too and boom, sin enters the world. Death enters the world. And now Jesus, the second Adam, the better Adam, comes to reverse the curse from Genesis chapter 3. He's a better Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 21 and 22 says this, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, we will all die be made alive. Yes. Jesus here is symbolically reversing this curse. He's showing a new way to, to be the guy that is tempted in every way, Hebrews says, but without sin. So let's look more closely at these three temptations. Verse three says, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first thing he says, if you are the son of God. So back at the end of chapter three, uh, specifically chapter three, verse 17, when he's baptized, that there is a voice from heaven that says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So that's the voice of the Father. When he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit falls, and God validates his identity. He is a much-loved son. I think the enemy might have been at that baptism. He might have been watching. Because when he comes after these 40 days, he knew his name. He says, hey, listen, if you are the son of God, Satan knew who Jesus was. Here's a question I have for you. 
Does the enemy know your name? Why do you think he knew Jesus' name? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. He knew that he was a threat to his kingdom. He knew that he was gonna establish a new way to live, that he was gonna conquer, destroy the enemy. And here's the question. Does the enemy know your name? When you come into consciousness in the morning and your eyes open, does all of hell go on full alert? Because they're like, he's up. She's awake. Demons, we got to go. We got to go knock them out of the game immediately. We got to bring some, a little bit of shame, a little bit of fear, a little bit of guilt to keep them at bay. You know that's the role of the enemy. Every day when your feet hit the ground, God has a plan for your life. And know this, the enemy has a plan for your life too. It makes me think about it. In Acts chapter 19, there's a story uh, of uh, the seven sons of Sceva and they're casting out demons because they're trying to make a profit off of it. And they try to cast out this demon. And do you remember what happened? The demon talks back to him. Says, I know Jesus, I know Paul. Who are you? And it says, literally, he beats the pants off of them. That they run out bleeding and naked. Because he's like, I don't even know who you are. For some of you spiritually, you brought a knife to a gunfight. You've bought into the lie of this Americanized version of Christianity, which is kind of dead. There's not a lot of life in it. You're kind of bored. What if there's more? What if there is a life that you were called to live? A life that would be dangerous to the enemy. So what does Jesus say? I mean, first of all, Jesus was hungry. If you don't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, you will be hungry. And the enemy comes and says, hey, turn those stones into bread. So here's the question. Could Jesus have turned those stones into bread? Absolutely. If he, from the Lord, received a word, hey, turn those stones into bread, it's not a bad thing to turn stones into bread. I mean, he multiplied fish and loaves, right, to feed 5,000 people. So it's not that that in itself was a bad thing. It's who was asking him to do it. What was the motivation? Hey, if you're really the son of God, show me your power. Show me you got what it takes. The temptation was for Jesus to fulfill his own need. But Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, backing up starting in verse two. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, this is Moses talking, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus quotes that. He's like, hey, I could turn those sons into bread, but man does not live by bread alone, but from every word 
that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is he saying? God's my sustainer. God's my sustainer. I don't need to succumb to your temptation to fulfill my own need. I'm gonna trust the Lord and what he has for me. David talks about this in Psalm 63. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. Look at this. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. What is David saying? He's saying, man, my worship of you, uh, your love is better than life and I am satisfied in you as with the richest of food. You are my sole provider. You're my sustainer. Now, what do we know about David? He was an adulterer, a murderer, horrible father, but he was also a man after God's own heart. But here, We see Jesus, who, first verse of Matthew, he is known as the son of David. He's a better David. He's a better David. He's a better king. And now we're seeing, he's like, hey, listen, man does not live by bread alone. God is my sustainer. So I started thinking about all the times that I've given in to temptation. And there have been a lot this week. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, but literally, you know when you are succumbing to temptation and giving yourself over to sin, right? You know that. So what precedes it? A lack of intimacy with the Lord. So here's the truth of the matter. For a lot of you, we talk a lot about uh, being in the secret place, about spending unhurried time with the Lord, and, and you refuse to do it. It seems like a great idea, but you just can't find time in your schedule. You don't know, I gotta get up really early to, to go to work, and when I get home, I'm tired, and I've got kids to tend to, and I gotta pay attention to my wife, and you convince yourself that you just can't do it but you're failing in your relationship with God, you hear stories about powerful things that are happening in other people's lives, and you're like, man, I want that. And the question is, do you? Because it's available. And the pathway to the life that you've always wanted is intimacy with God. And so what has preceded every time I have fallen in to a pattern of sin in my life is a lack of intimacy with God. When I'm spiraling out of control, it's because there's something missing. It is symptomatic. For a lot of us, we look at people that drink too much and we're like, hey, you need to stop drinking. Instead of asking the question, hey, let's talk about what's going on in your spiritual life. Because people that are struggling in addictions, even self-addiction, that's just a symptom of a greater problem. If I ever spend time with you and you start telling me about a struggle that's going on in your, on in your life, just know this. The first question I'm going to ask you is, tell me about your devotional life. Tell me about the time you're spending with the Lord every day. And most of the time it's like, uh, I mean. <laughs> and know this, I'm not judging you. I've been there. I was a professional Christian that got fired from my job. Because I was so lost in my self-addiction. 
And there were all these symptoms. I mean, they were red sirens that were flashing that people were willing to overlook for whatever reason. And my life came falling with a crash. And it was all because of a lack of intimacy with Jesus. So if you're broken today, man, this is not judgment. This is an invitation. You don't have to live that way anymore. What preceded Jesus' temptation? 40 days of fasting and prayer. Intimacy. He was dialed into, my strength comes not from myself. Yes, he was God in the flesh, and yet he intuited and wanted you and me to know in 2024 that you don't do it on your own. That the pathway to the life you've always wanted comes through intimacy with Jesus. Okay, verse five. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you so they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, where is he attacking him? In his identity. He's a much loved son. He's the son of God. He's like, hey, you're the son of God. Let's, hey, follow me real quick. They go to the highest point in the temple. He's like, hey, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. And then what does he do? The enemy quotes scripture. Think about that. This is bizarre. He quotes Psalm 91. Says, hey, if you throw yourself off, angels are gonna come and catch you. How cool would that have been, by the way? Jesus jumps and is like, oh, <laughs> you know? So why didn't he do it? He could have just, he could have endgamed it right there. That's right, I am the son of God. Watch what I'm about to do. Why didn't he do it? Because we see throughout the gospels, specifically in the book of John, his time had not yet come. For a lot of you, you're addicted to the whole idea that in order to follow God, I gotta see signs and wonders in my life. Right? I need, I, I, I need you to do a miracle, God. If you will do the miracle, then I will follow you. I got a flair for the dramatic. Be dramatic in my life, and then I'll follow you. Have you ever made a deal with God like that? Hey, God, if you'll just come through, then I will. Then I will give. Then I'll show up every week at church. Two weeks a month. Maybe. Well, let's see how it goes. But do the miracle. And know this. God is in the business of doing miracles. But what if the greatest miracle is he transforms your mind and your heart where you don't need the miraculous, you just need him. What if that's what he wants to do? If he wants to train your mind and train your heart to be content in every circumstance regardless of the outcome? What if he's inviting you into a life of power where you don't see that as the end game? But did you catch how crafty Satan is? The brother's quote in scripture
So I could probably make a pretty strong case that the enemy knows more scripture than you do. We could do an exercise right now, and I would say besides John 3.16, raise your hand if you know one verse, just one verse. Yeah, you don't have to raise your hands. Um, <laughs> yeah. And if I went and pointed to you eager beavers, um, there's a better than average chance, and I'm just keeping it real, that you would misquote it, you wouldn't know where it was found, um, that, that it would be like, ah, oh, that's kind of what it says, but not exactly, and that's not where it's found at all. Um, and I'm not judging you, but here's the truth of the matter. We don't know God's word. The enemy knows God's word better than you do. And we walk, again, we're walking into a gunfight with a knife. We're like, oh, wait, I didn't know this is what we were doing. What if God's given us this so that we can ingest it Remember, we said the word of God is living and active, meaning it gets in us, and it will change us if we'll let it. Over time, as we memorize and we meditate on Scripture, know this, when a moment like this comes, what is in you will come out. So the last time you were in conflict, what came out of you? Don't answer it out loud. We don't want to hear all that profanity, right? The truth of the matter is, for a lot of us, we are not feeding on the word of God, but then we're expecting it to come to the surface when we need it the most. And clearly, the enemy knows the word. He quoted it verbatim. Good job, Satan. And what does Jesus do? He's like, oh, we're quoting scripture? <laughs> okay. Um, Deuteronomy, again, 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he's combating scripture with scripture. Look at verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So this one's actually funny to me. So he takes him up to this high mountain where he can see all the kingdoms of the world and Satan's like, hey, I'll give you all this if you'll just bow down and worship me. He's offering Jesus something he already owns. I mean, this is snake oil salesman at its finest. Talk about not reading the room. Satan takes him up on the spouse like, hey, you can have all this. It can all be yours if the price is right. Just bow down and worship me. So Colossians had not been written yet, or he would have known. Colossians 1:15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Get this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Yes. The created was offering something to the creator. I gotta imagine that Jesus probably snickered. <laughs> really, bro? Because it's all mine. 
And how does he respond? Deuteronomy 6.13. Fear the Lord your God. Other versions say worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Have no other gods before me. So for you, the enemy is always offering you a kingdom. And know this, he always overpromises and underdelivers. Why? Because it's not his to offer you. But he offers you this whole idea of financial gain. And he's like, hey, if you'll just cheat on your taxes, you'll have a little more scratch to be able to put that pool in. Or if you'll just step over this person and manipulate the situation, you're going to get the job promotion you've always wanted. Or I know you like your wife. I know you think you love her. But look over here. She's pretty attractive. And he's always offering us an alternative to the way of Jesus. And it looks good. And he's like, hey, listen, do this and you're going to build a kingdom. I'm going to build a kingdom around you. And know this, we love it. You know why? Because we are kingdom builders by nature. We love us some us. And we love for the world to revolve around us. We love to insulate ourselves in comfort and promotion. We love to be in a world where everything's about us. And Jesus looks at him like, okay, Satan. And again, he combats it with scripture. Worship the Lord and serve him only. Are you ready for, this is gonna be mind-blowing for some of you. When the enemy comes to you and offers you the kingdoms of this world, he's actually offering you something you already own. It's a follower of Jesus. Romans 8, 17 says, not only are we heirs with God, but we are co-heirs with Christ. Meaning this, I am not a less than in the kingdom of God. I don't step into heaven. Some of you believe you're gonna be up against the gate, right? That I barely snuck in and there's a jumbotron and Jesus is on it and I'm back there a long way in the distance just kind of making sure I can kind of see him. No, you're on the front row. Amen. I don't know how that works. But in eternity, we are co-heirs with Jesus. Whatever Jesus has, I got. Why? Because that's the way God set it up. There are no less sins in the kingdom of God. Everything, every desire of the human heart is fulfilled in Jesus. And when I say yes to Jesus, and Jesus is on the inside of me, I not only have the resurrection power of Jesus, but I also am now a co-heir with him and all the rights and privileges that go along with it. So know this, when the enemy comes to you and whispers in your ear that you can get some self-promotion so that you can build your own kingdom, know this, in the name of Jesus and by the power of Jesus, you already got everything you need. Take that, Satan. You know, Matthew 5, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but Jesus said, hey, blessed are the meek, for they do what? Inherit the earth. Not blessed are the power brokers. Not blessed, blessed are the most talented. That's an American concept. I kick the door in, right? That's how I get what I want. I said that like I've ever done that. 
And they were like, you look kind of awkward. It is not the power brokers that inherit the earth. It is the meek. And meek is not weakness. It is strength under control. Meaning just because you can doesn't mean you should. And this strength under control only comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we inherit the earth. Jesus says, away from me, Satan. And look what happens, verse 11. It says, the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Satan had no choice but to leave. He was out of bullets. It's like, I got nothing left. Guess I gotta go. See you at the cross. Half-brother of Jesus in the book of James, verses Chapter four, verse seven, said, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We love the second half of the verse. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Here's the problem. You can only resist for so long. In and of yourself, uh, when you try to just uh, live a life where I trust Jesus to get to heaven when I die, but then I just try to be a better version of myself and I try to be religious and I try to just be a person that does the right thing, be a good moral person, that's great. It just doesn't work. And you know that. And you're failing every day and you're giving in to temptation over and over and over again because you refuse to do the first part of the verse. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Submission, this is placing myself under the authority and under the leadership of Jesus. That's where it starts. And guess what? Resisting gets a lot easier in that scenario. When I'm in a daily, vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus, the world just kind of fades away. In the NFL, they talk about a quarterback where they go, everything's slowing down for him today meaning that they're getting all the reads and everything just, man, that everything's working. Happened to C.J. Stroud last night. (laughs) You're excited about that, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, it is. (laughs) All right. They'll probably be out in the first round. Uh, But uh, uh, sorry, Chris. Uh, Sorry, season ticket holder. (laughs) Submit to God. Then resist the enemy. Why? Because when you're submitted in a relationship with the Holy Spirit, he's gonna give you the strength and the power to resist, to overcome. Okay, let me close with three things. Number one, fasting breeds intimacy with God. Fasting breeds intimacy with God. See, Jesus was submitted to God before temptation. He was already there. He was already in this vibrant intimacy with him. He was physically weakened, but he was spiritually fully alive. Maybe today you're living in shame, constantly losing to the enemy, but you're not living in daily submission to Jesus. And so the invitation is this. Man, we're, we're about to embark on these 21 days. What have you got to lose? If life isn't working, maybe try something different. 
The definition of insanity, I think Einstein said this, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You keep drawing from the same well and coming up dry and you come to 2024 and you're like, well, wash, rinse, repeat. What if there's an invitation into a different life? The next 21 days can be a great next step for you. Again, the next verse after James 4, 7 is James 4, 8. And he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I want to amend that a little bit. Draw near to God and what you'll find is he's already come close to you. He's not a long way off and he's got to travel a long way to get to you. As soon as you call his name, it's like, he's right here. It's who he is. And fasting breeds intimacy with God. And you learn to be led by the Spirit in the laboratory of the secret place. Number two, if you are following Jesus, expect to be attacked. Expect it. Again, are you dangerous to the enemy? Are you living this life, a life of power? Know this, if you are living in intimacy with Jesus, just expect that attack is coming. Because in reality, the closer you get to Jesus, the more he's gonna come after you. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's a part of it. But 1 John 4.4 says, greater is the one that lives in me than he that is in the world. Intimacy brings a spiritual power. So when the attack comes, it doesn't mean you're gonna get it 100%. This side of Jesus, no one will get it 100%. But I gotta imagine, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we become like him and the less predisposed towards sin we are. Does the enemy know your name? Number three, the word of God is your greatest weapon. It's your greatest weapon. We pray this every week, Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is what? Living and active. It's not a book of stories. And then it goes on to say, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. What a great tool we have in his word. Psalm 119.11, the psalmist says this, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart. Psalm 119.105, he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What does that mean? It means that memorizing and meditating on the Word of God, ingesting it and let it become a part of who you are uh, is so important because when the temptation comes, when the attack comes, whatever is in you will come out. What would it be like for you to say, hey, this is gonna be the year that I'm gonna dive into His Word and I'm gonna begin to memorize key verses so when the attack comes, I'm gonna be ready. challenge you to take these next 21 days seriously, find your rhythm in fasting, develop a resolve to draw near to Jesus, expect opposition, memorize and meditate on scripture until it becomes a part of you, and then just watch what God will do. What have you got to lose? 